Hello, friends and family. This is JJ Ruescas, the host of Optimizing Me or Optimizando Me in Spanish, the show where we invite top performers from different industries to learn from their stories, their ups, their downs, their lessons, and mostly to learn from their mindset. Our guest today is an executive coach who spent more than 25 years studying human mind and performance. She has a passion for translating psychology and neuroscience into workspace and leadership applications. Thanks to that, she has been trusted by companies like Coca-Cola, Vodafone, HelloFresh, and many more. She's on a mission to improve performance without compromising well-being, and we are going to talk about that today. I am personally very excited about this conversation because lately we focused on how to avoid burnout for people that spend a ton of time in front of the computer, like you and me. Without further ado, let me introduce you to Banu Hantam. Hi, Banu. Hi, JJ. A small correction. Now it's Banu Kellner, actually. Banu Hantam is my own last name, and my husband is getting <laughs> upset because I keep using my last name, so it's Banu Kellner now. <laughs> We also need to change the domain, the website. As long as your as long as your husband pays for for all the cost of translating or moving yeah. the domain, we're all yeah. good. So now let's let's start from that point. Who is Vanu? What does and what does it mean to be an executive coach? So I think executive coach is someone basically who's coaching executives and leaders through different kind of challenges, and depending on what type of background the executive coaches, what they bring to the table can be different. But in general, when you're, you're not a business coach, so you're not giving advice on the business aspects, drivers of success, but you are working on the drivers of success that comes from the person, from the leader. So some people are more leadership oriented and some people are, um, maybe more that, you know, like setting the organization up for success kind of oriented. And it depends because there are executive coaches who have been executives before and that's why they are coaching other people right now. It, their background is their understanding of their personal experience before when they've gone through that process. So they want to share their experience and knowledge in that sense. And there are executive coaches who are scientifically trained or they are trained in modalities that are, has a more of a systems understanding. They just understand how performance works or how organizations work, how the culture uh, forms. So they bring a more like a systemic knowledge and experience and, you know, on, to the table. So it depends on what kind of background they are, but the goal is the same, trying to help executives not only perform better, but become better leaders, have a better life. And my mission is I say, do great things, live a good life, because I really believe that you can have it both. Or like when I say good life, I, I mean meaningful life, just to, you know, put in the quotes. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Now, in terms of, of uh, leaders, or executives of companies who are the leaders of a group that is trying to get to a meaningful a meaningful goal, right? So what are the challenges that they usually face that you see them facing? There are multiple. They may, to begin with, they may not have a meaningful vision. They may have a vision that makes 
a lot of business sense or what is trending so it may seem meaningful from outside but the founders or the executives may not really make that emotional connection themselves therefore cannot communicate it to the people that they work with so the meaning part of it is is just the sentence right on the website like what they say but the meaning is something that is felt experienced nothing is in itself meaningful or not it's a subjective experience that makes it meaningful to the person so it needs to be a felt experience sometimes they don't have it from get-go you know they start with the idea that oh like everybody's trying to do that oh like let me create positive impact in the world because that's the cool thing to do it doesn't necessarily mean even if they they have a mission-based business that doesn't mean that they find it really meaningful for them so that's one case another one they start a company because i mostly work with founder startup founder ceos right now and what i see commonly is when they start the company they have a vision they find that really you know meaningful and they are pulled by that vision but in time they change and they are in the day-to-day -day parts of the business they lose the connection either they lose the connection they forget about because that's not what they are focusing on they are dealing with like mundane issues putting down fires uh, putting out fires and they can lose the sight of the meaning of what they are doing or sometimes they change what they found meaningful before is not as meaningful to them now with the person they are today and if a leader cannot feel the meaning it's really hard to get it across to a whole organization to be pulled by meaning and then feeling like the time i spend here the work i do here is meaningful then it's hard to achieve even in mission-based companies even in mission-based companies huh now it's interesting what you mentioned also let me let me get uh deeper on the part of putting fires because i was talking yesterday to uh to the head of uh people ops of, of a big company and he was telling me how once they achieved that goal there were new problems some new fires to put and he was getting frustrated right and uh, so how is how, how, how the leaders can lead without uh, with that without getting burned down which starts taking us into into this this conversation well you need to learn to love the game because that's the game it's never going to change so there is this mistaken approach when especially that new founders they are like okay like once we get successful right it's uh, until there there's nothing other side of the success or even fundraising it's like stressful until that point right if we just can get the series done and then they do it guess what now there are more thing more challenges that they need to deal with like success brings challenges as well it's not only the failure like people think like oh like the challenges as if it's problems no when things go well you will have challenges because now that you raise a bunch of money you need to grow the company you need to figure out okay like how are we gonna grow in a way without breaking the culture make sure that we are not hiring in a way that is gonna make it more cumbersome and then we lose our agility so there are a lot of different questions comes into the play so and in a startup which i'm mostly working with like that 
that's the thing. Like if you cannot learn to find your center and grounding in an ever changing environment and ups and downs and roller coaster, this is a roller coaster ride. And the expectation should be that there's no point that you come, you arrive and it's smooth sailing. So for someone that thinks this is a violation of what needs to be, it's supposed to be smooth sailing. And like, why are we having this roller coaster? There's going to be a lot of suffering because they're going to resist what's happening. But if the person understands that this is exactly the game, there are going to be ups, they're going to be down. And this is what I'm signing up for. I have, let me, let me inter interject with, with a question here. And we can, we can ask this question and get back to this, which is going to be, how does the suffering get reflected? How does a person know that they are suffering? They may not be aware of it. So reflected to the other people in the organization, you mean? Or, or even yeah. how can they can say, I am in a suffering state because sometimes this thing of putting up fires becomes so normalized. And like you said, it's, it, bec it becomes a firefighting job instead of a, of a meaningful job. No, it, firefighting can be very meaningful. You know, firefighters do something that can be very challenging at times, but I'm sure you don't become a firefighter because, you know, you don't find it meaningful. You feel like I'm saving lives here, right? It can be meaningful. So meaningfulness is not about existence or lack of change, challenge, stress. I think the suffering happens when the person's mindset, the way they perceive, unconsciously perceive the situation if they see it as a challenge or as a threat. So the difference between a threat and a challenge is threat is something that is threatening my life or my livelihood. There's a threat that I need to fight or run away from, right? Whereas challenge, like you play, do you play video games? Yeah. Are there challenges in a video game? Every, that, that's the point of the video games, right? Exactly. And when you are going through these challenges, do you feel threatened your life is in danger or do you enjoy the challenge? You may get frustrated and stressed, right? Your heart rate increases, your muscle tone. Yeah, you get all of these symptoms, but we enjoy it. What is the difference between that, getting stressed during a video game and getting stressed because of the roller coaster, a lot of like putting down fires? Correct. The adrenaline of the game. Why do people can like, cannot even, they get so hooked to a video game. They can like play it if they let themselves for like half of the day, like 12 hours straight. There are some people who does it, especially younger people. I guess like they cannot even let it go. Like they enjoy it that much. And you cannot take that game away from them. But if you look at it, it's very stressful environment it's very challenging you get like upset you get off oh, like disappointed all of them happens so there is if there is the the brain like what we call neuroception neuroception is our nervous system's ability to scan the environment 24 7 even when you're sleeping for threats so you have this system, even when you're sleeping, that's why like if somebody calls out your name or like something out of the ordinary happens, you will wake up. But if some ordinary noise is there, you won't wake up because no reception is going to be screening out like this is something different. This may be a problem. It will wake you up. So even when you're sleeping, the reception is always awake and no reception 
is responsible for tagging stuff to be safe or unsafe. That's a binary thing. Are we safe or are we not safe? So if you feel safe and you have a problem, you then it's a challenge. It's like a video game. And ambitious people love that. They thrive in that. You know, they, it's an adventure. It's like that challenge. It's like playing the game. So if you're playing the game, yeah, you get stressed during when it's happening, but it doesn't harm. It's not going to burn you out, right? But if your neuroception says, oh, look, this is a battle, right? Like, oh, like it, if I fail, they feel like, not in a conscious, but an unconscious way because of the language we use, that it's a battle. If the company dies, everybody is going to die. Like, it, Or if I do this presentation, it doesn't go well. Like their nervous system, the older parts of their um, brain is thinking like, oh, this doesn't go well, I'm going to die. And this is due to our evolutionary past. So there are different parts of the nervous system and um, brain, and some are older, some are newer. And older parts of them have stronger influence on us. If there is, like, if, if the brain um, sees anything dangerous, it will start employing the older systems to deal with that um, threats. And the problem is, we've never developed a different system for psychological threats. Because in our nature, natural environment, which is the hunter-gatherer environment, that's what we evolved for, all psychological threats are also life threats. If you piss off your tribe and they kick you out, you cannot survive in nature on your own. Human beings are not equipped to survive alone in nature. So pissing someone off can be a life threat, right? Not being approved, validated by other people can be a life threat. And at that time, it was very adaptive, right? But now we changed the environment. Now we are living with millions of people. How am I going to get validation of millions of people? How am I going to be in harmony for with millions of people? So, and we don't have a system for that. Like, it doesn't mean that if somebody doesn't validate me, I'm going to die. But our system doesn't understand that. We are not wired that way. And that's why we need to kind of top down, figure out how to give our nervous system the sense of safety. How do we change the neuroception from unsafe to safe? And because it doesn't naturally happen. So one of those things is language, because language is the programming of the mind for us. Um, it's very important, the type of language. When we use like a warlike language for business, we are creating an environment that is not going to feel safe for the brain. Right, just the words I use can change the way I respond to things. So I like the game analogy rather than the battle.
Right. And you, you were making me think about learn to love the game, not the flame, right? <laughs> because many people, they think that they need to get to struggle and to keep hustling. Depends on how you define flame, right? A flame can be your fire, can be your passion, can be your love. Like that's something that can fuel you if you define it that way. But if you define it as suffering that hurts you, that I agree with you, like, because it's like this purity, especially in this country, I'd see that more. Uh, I don't know like what your perception is, um, but in uh, States, there's this, especially on the East Coast, um, it's so strong. It's just the suffering in itself has value, regardless of what it creates, the output you create. Or the hard work, like if you're not working hard, then whatever you're, you know, creating is not like because you didn't work hard for it. So, and that sometimes puts us in trouble with this kind of stuff, because if you think to be worthy, you need to suffer. Of course, you're gonna find all the opportunities to suffer, because everybody wants to be worthy. Now, going back to the to the new uh, to the neuroception way of observing this thing so you're telling us that there are three stages of evolution in in our physiology and because of those three we have different responses to the stimuli that we may consider danger or, or, or a threat or a challenge so let's get a little deeper onto this one because um Usually people will think that, no, no, it's my mind. I need to change my mind. And they get focused. They get locked on the mindset. And I do believe that there is a lot of uh, work that can be done there. But from the, let's start tackling from this physiological angle. Let's see. Um, yeah, before I come to the states and survival responses, I want to touch upon like if it's the mindset or something else. Sometimes it's the mindset. Sometimes it's not. There are amygdala the part of the brain that is, um, you know, uh, related to fear and negative emotions and emotional memories, you can trigger amygdala and there are two different pathways. One of them is automatic. So you don't even have a come before you can have a conscious awareness before even you can have a thought. It's so fast. It will trigger directly your amygdala. So it's like it bypasses your conscious processes. It's an, involuntary it's very fast and the second pathway is go through your cortex through your thoughts so something like there's a stimulus and then it triggers your cortex and then you think something and that the content the type of the thought can trigger amygdala or there are certain things that doesn't require that it will directly trigger it it may be because we are universally wired to see certain things as a, like, for example, low frequency sounds can trigger a threat response. Not because we think anything about the low frequency sounds, because again, going to hunter gatherer pass, low frequency sounds can be seen as like the, an animal growling. And, you know, it, it may indicate that there is a dangerous animal around. So it doesn't require any type of mindset. It's just gone, done. But there are certain things we, we are not wired to automatically respond to or we are not conditioned to automatically respond to, then it's our mindset that will trigger that. So mindset is very important, but it's not 
you know, exclusively the reason uh, for that. Um, and coming back to this state, so there are different parts of the nervous system responsible for creating different survival responses. And we have three main survival responses. Um, and one of them is, as most people know, fight or flight, right? If there's a danger, I'm going to give either a fight response if I feel like I have a chance to beat that threat up. And I'm going to give runaway response, flight response, if my brain, right, the, my unconscious brain makes a calculation and says like, eh, I don't know, I don't think you can win this fight, so run away. So it depends we can, what kind of response we give, either run away or duck. There is another uh, survival response. Some people call it freeze. Um, I like the collapse and shutdown, freeze, collapse, shutdown. And that's when something like really intense life-threatening happens. The animal organism, uh, and you see them in reptiles a lot, like they will just freeze and then it will look dead for a while, right? And this is an, it's intense or like a person, like in a very scary condition, they may just paint, right? It's a, it's a collapse shutdown and it's intense version. And there's like milder versions of that, those. And there's a third res survival response. Nobody thinks as a survival uh, response which is social engagement. Because social engagement is how we survive in nature. Humans are for humans. For humans. That's what made us humans. This is the reason we are the top animal, right? Because our survival response in times of threat is like bond together and fight that or like find a solution to that, create that. That's why we develop language because that's what helped us survive in that environment. And that's a newer, in terms of uh, the neural network, that's a newer system and evolution. And that's more like, as humans, I think we have uniquely, um, yeah, adv we are advanced in that sense, the way we are socially engage with each other and create things. So at any given time, we give one of these responses. And again, it depends on neuroception's tagging of the current situation. If the current situation is tagged safe, then we're going to give the social engagement response. If it's tagged dangerous, we give fight or flight response. And if it's life-threatening, in such a way that like it's very probable that I'm gonna die. Like it's serious. It's not just dangerous, it's life threatening. Then it's collapse and shut down. So that and the reason of collapse of shutdown is if it's a life threatening thing, and if, if imagine there is a predator like a lion on top of me, and if I go like completely limp, number one the animal may let me go, right? Like if you're not moving, you're not taking, or you see them around and like you freeze 
and they may not notice you. Your breathing lowers, it makes you less visible in nature. Or you fell into a ditch and you cannot get out. Something needs to happen for you too. Like, and you're trying to increase the time that you can stay alive until you figure something out. So your metabolic resources are very precious. So the whole body lowers all the operations to resolve resources. So everything is shutting down so I can use those resources for a longer period of time. So it has multiple benefits in a serious life-threatening situations. And I actually, thanks to that, I think I'm alive today. I had a shark encounter. And yeah, this is in Miami and Memorial Day. And I live really close to the beach. So I say, oh, I just want to jump in, swim a little bit. And the, the beach is so crowded. I just threw my towel, got in because it's a holiday. Everybody is like, you, normally you don't really swim directly out. Obviously the sharks. But it was such a crowded place and I don't like to swim like everyone. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'll just go a little bit further. I swim my swim and my spidey senses are off. Like I'm like, something is off. I get my head up. I look towards the beach and I see hundreds of people like screaming and waving. I say screaming. However, I heard or in my memory, there is no sound. Completely sound is taken up. In my memory, there's zero registration of sound. I just saw that and I'm like, uh-uh. And I look next to me and there's this giant blackness, like literally touching like this, the side, not the face. Thank God I didn't see the face. And I did not feel anything. There is no panic. There is no fear. I was completely numb. There was no sounds. And then there was this weird mental space. And I realized, okay, there's a shark. And I like very slowly, like very slowly start swimming towards the shore. I, you know, like I wasn't splashing. I wasn't anything like literally I had, I had no feelings. The second I was able to touch the ground, and I knew I was safe, my body started shaking uncontrollably. Like my, you know, like the stress, like the second my brain, the nervous system realized that life threat is over. Then I was able to give, and now it says, now you have chances to resist, now run. Like get out of that situation. So I was like my, and then I was able to get out. So it is amazing to give these survival responses in the right places and it saves our life. These are very functional. There's nothing wrong with them in themselves. The problem is when they don't fit the situation and why do we give them in the places that doesn't make sense is because this world we live in is not the one we evolved for. So it doesn't know like the system does not match the environment. And then we're giving these maladaptive responses. Then they become a problem for us. I say, I, you know, the way we are wired, 
is a Ferrari. It's a state-of-the-art vehicle. Like, it's amazing system. But for hunter-gatherer world. Now, we took that Ferrari and put them put it in off-road. So, how, how does Ferrari function in off-road in the woods? It keeps breaking and it's like, it's like, like, what's wrong with this car? Well, nothing is wrong with the car. It just doesn't belong here. And it cannot function well here. So that's why we need to do some modifications. We need to get it higher. We need to put like, you know how those modified trucks? Take the Ferrari and figure out how do we modify it so that we can actually drive this car in the woods. And every day we are changing the environment even further with technology. It's that the pace is getting exponentially higher. So this problem is going to become bigger and bigger. So we need to figure it out. There is a quote from Edward O. Wilson that I love and it's and, and, and it can at some point relate with what you're saying, which is we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions and godlike technology. I love it. I need that quote from you. Yes, I, sure. I agree. I agree. So that, that is the thing. We are Ferrari for the paleolithic times. <laughs> so how do we how do we make this happen? in nowadays times without giving up how is it that you train or how you lead those leaders not to burn out and to achieve optimal performance so there are a few things um here let me tell you about my theory about burnout i um i disagree with the mainstream model seeing burnout as an overworking problem i don't believe Workout, um, burnout is caused by overworking and like having, you know, stressful situations. It is another symptom of the problem rather than the cause of the problem. And I think the burnout is a maladaptive survival response given to the work environment because the nervous system perceives the environment as life-threatening. Right. If the neuroception of your work environment, what's going on at work, if it's as dangerous, you're going to be in fight or flight a lot. And it's accepted as the norm. Like people live like that and they think it's normal. No, it's not normal because guess what? It's not dangerous. You're not going to die. You don't have a risk of dying at all. You don't risk being hungry. If this work doesn't work out, you'll find another one. We live in the golden age of humanity. Like, for most of us, yeah, like super safe. Like nothing we do at work can have any bearings on our life, right? Physically surviving. Um, but and if the neuroception decides the work environment is life threatening, then what the you know the person is literally burned out, meaning that they can't like it's done. They cannot go back to work. They have to quit. And I've seen people like CEOs, founders, quit their company in one day. No preparation, no anything. One day they wake up and it's done. There's nothing they can do because now the system is using the collapse shutdown 
and there is no motivation, like all the resources, all the function is taken down, like how I was numb, I couldn't feel any, you know, it, it takes away all the motivation, it shuts down the social engagement, it shuts down the prefrontal cortex, which does all the sophisticated mental op operations that you need as a knowledge worker, like planning, doing things, um, you know, processing different different perspectives, different kind of information, and a bunch of other stuff. So that is not working. So it's it's not like you cannot perform. It's you're done at that point. Some people have it for a little bit of time. They can they take a vacation, and they feel like oh it's getting better. Yeah, it will getting better because you left the environment for a little bit, but you didn't solve the problem. You come back, and you're gonna have the same problem again. It's not going to solve the problem. It may help in the sense that they may have enough power to quit actually and find another job. But the problem is, if it's caused by their mindset, they find another job, the environment may be a little different, but if the mindset is the main cause, whatever job you do, it's going to find you. Right. But for some people, it's not mindset, it's the environment. Like certain triggers in the environment can also be the cause. In that case, it may become better in another job um, and and this happens for three main reasons the collapse shutdown either you feel trapped or you feel overwhelmed meaning that the threat is so big is that exceeds your capacity to cope I'm talking about being literally overwhelmed that I, I can't it's that doesn't match the ability and trapped can be about anything right it's it's a subjective experience of the situation hmm. so just to just to recap three reasons for collapse feeling trapped two reasons I've feeling seen. overwhelmed uh, two reasons okay. feeling trapped okay. feeling overwhelmed and i think everything else can okay. be chunked you know chunked down to one of these two uh-huh yeah and now i can see it when people I mean, it's like we have layers and layers and layers of narratives that later they can get, like you said, chunked chunk down to either of those two. And now, okay, what happens when you find someone who is in that stage, whether trapped or overwhelmed, how to get the person out of that, whether it's a CEO, whether it's, it's the operator of, the, of machinery, how does that work? So you look at the, first of all, what you're trying to uncover what the brain assesses as life-threatening, right? what they feel unconsciously trapped in or overwhelmed by and you work around those issues and like common forms are like when we get back to the meaning for example sometimes people feel they are trapped in a situation that has no meaning i go to work i keep doing this i don't find meaning in it and i'm like trapped in a meaningless place and i cannot leave because i'm scared to quit my job or whatever that thing like for employees it's it's that i've seen founders creating a company that doesn't fit them culturally and their values and they feel like trapped in a company they created because they they like starting things but they don't like to run things in the long term and it's like i created this i cannot like quit and go like i'm trapped in my own creation and people feel very this is a very common one uh overwhelmed 
because the demands from the environment is ever increasing, never decreasing. It gets more like the more technology allows that to happen. We are bombarded with the things we can do, the things we can learn, the tasks we can accomplish, the successes. It's this endless things that you can think of. It will never end. Like, how am I gonna like if you're a person that comes from a mindset like I have to do it all, you're screwed. I don't know how you cannot burn out. If you have to do it all, and it's impossible to do it all, what are you going to do? Even people who love learning sometimes find themselves in a situation. It's like, oh, I want to learn everything all at once. And there's so much possibility, but I cannot learn fast enough. And then there's this sense of like I'm chasing something. And they can feel overwhelmed by everything they feel like they should know already and they can't ever catch up or regardless of what they accomplish the success post of success is always moving away like never feeling satisfied and like coming to a place of overwhelm because it feels like it's never gonna work out and you're again trapped in a cycle that's very um negative for them like there are different situation for you know different cases for different people sometimes it's interpersonal relationships that can be very triggering of survival responses for certain people so you work on the the mental aspects of it um that's one because that's the only thing that will actually cure it either you change the mindset or you change the environment one of those two and that will take care of the problem however it's not always possible to exactly pinpoint or they may have a harder time to change either the mindset or the environment and blah, blah, blah. Or because they are in survival responses, they are in, you know, collapse shutdown already. They don't have enough motivation or energy to spend, spend it on fixing the problem because it requires energy and focus. And, you know, if you're, if your brain is not working, you cannot think, you cannot remember anything, you don't want to get out of the bed, like how are you going to fix this problem, right? We cannot get the person there yet. So because of that, regulation is super important. So there are certain things you can intervene and change the nervous system state. So you can take someone, there are things you can do to take yourself out of a shutdown collapse or fight or flight. Again, this is a temporary fix you can take it momentarily out but i think that's what the problem is currently everybody is teaching the painkiller like how you can suppress the symptoms like oh like if you go to vacation if you take time like self-care yeah these are all wonderful don't get me wrong these are necessary but it's not going to solve the problem it and it depends on the stage where the person is right because if they are at the at the collapse stage, if they say, just go get a nap <laughs> or, or, or or go for a walk. No, no, no. They may need the different type of strategies to get them move up to to more resourceful states. Yeah, there are, depending on where you are, you, you have to really fine tune it to understand where you are on that spectrum and then fine tune it. Because if you do the wrong thing to regulate it, what regulates a person? in a high fight or flight 
if you try to do the same technique when the person is shut down, it's going to backfire tremendously. So you cannot use the same regulation techniques at, you know, it depends where you are. You have to understand it first. And then you use that regulation to get yourself regulated so that you can work on finding the cure, the dealing with the root cause of the issue. And that is missing currently in the current model. And I don't see anybody like really dealing with the core pieces of the issue. And I know that we can dive into this, this section of how to maybe help people to regulate and have strategies because one part of the, of this situation is getting people or burnout prevention. The other part is helping them get out from burnout. And the third one is reaching optimal performance. Or do you see any other stages along along the way? That's kind of what I see it. So the good thing is the same knowledge and the tools that you can use to get yourself out of burnout are also the things that's going to increase your performance. Even if you're not burned out, you cannot use this understanding to manage your performance because we are all going to give all these responses like the states are active and they need to be responding to things that's not a problematic thing so understanding where you are in that map of the nerve you know nervous system states and choosing what you're going to do at that state can make a huge difference for example decision making if you realize that you are in fight or flight which I call the yellow, you know, not me, but actually that somebody coined those um, conceptualization, but call it the yellow zone and the red zone is collapse and shutdown. If you're in the yellow zone or if you're in the red zone, I, you know, tell my clients, don't make any important decisions. Before you make an important decision, check with yourself. What zone are you in? Make sure you're in the green zone because only in the green zone you can use your prefrontal cortex optimally, the part that will allow you to make decisions. Because if you're in the yellow zone or red zone, what happens is the nervous system like pulls away the oxygen and glucose from prefrontal cortex. So it minimizes its functioning depending on the severity of the activation and sometimes in a way that like, you can't even think. Sometimes you don't even remember like your husband's name, maybe, you know, like can get that far, right? So if you cannot think, I don't think you're in a position to make any decisions. But the problem is in fight or flight situation, for example, especially in a fight, there's a lot of mobilization. There's a lot of energy to go and address that thing, which is an, you know, evolutionary, very adaptive response. If there's a threat, go deal with it right now. It works in the hunter-gatherer world. But the people are more likely to want to make a decision when they are in that situation. And that's not the time they should be making that decision. Because we need to, as knowledge workers, our thinking has to be long term. Like it's not like we have this animal or a person I'm gonna fight for my survival right now. It doesn't work that way. So um so decisions are like more future, like it's creating the future. So it's it's very, you know, suboptimal to make decisions in these kind of situations. The important decisions, you can make decisions that 
are not they're not gonna have um but also there are nuances there there's sometimes you can use that sympathetic mobilization to make good decisions if you've already decided that what the decision is but you don't have the guts to do it then to employ it it may be a good time so there are nuances like that for example if you're going to break up with something you feel like when you're in the green zone you know that this relationship is not good for me right i need to break up but you may not be able to break up because it's hard like there's a lot of motivation that needs to be there and there's something else to break that bond that is strong. But if you already have that understanding, then it's great to be in fight or flight mobilization because you know what? Now you're going to have the fire that you need to do it. It's hard to do it in green zone. When your social engagement's, you know, active, it's harder to break up. So if you understand how the system works, you can actually leverage each piece of the state there's no bad states you just need to leverage them and you need to figure out what you need to do to regulate yourself at that point in time and what is adaptive what is the context so it is very important for like improving performance for anyone hmm. And, and what you mentioned, understanding how the human systems work, sometimes we don't even realize that we are um, having a, a heart rate that is about to explode in our chest, right? Our heart, or we don't even notice it. We are so disengaged with our or with ourselves sometimes. And actually, I've, I've, I've been in that position, and that's what led into somatic... Um, expressions of anxiety of fear and so on and so forth so okay yeah and it's a hydrocerebral people are really good at severing that kind of thing like they're mentally like I, I i was one of those people i had amazing mental coping mechanisms but i never paid attention to my body physiology and i would have like all these psychosomatic illnesses like what is going on here and the truth is, we are not, when we say we, we are not just our mind. This is one thing. It's just different expressions of things. Like we think that there's a mind and there's a body. And then the further you understand how things work, you cannot separate them. There is, so it's, we are a psychophysiological being. And I really believe to look everything from a psychophysiological lens. And probably there's an energy part of it too. Like I, we don't know that scientifically yet. Who knows? Maybe there are more elements, but at least scientifically, we know that we are psychophysiological beings. And the way that that I that I um, see it is that the UI affects the or the software affects this the hardware, and the hardware affects the software. In other words, our our body and our mind, right? They're completely interconnected. Yes, you can definitely affect your mind through changing your physiology, or you can affect your physiology through changing your mind. There are intervention methods from both sides. And, you know, like with my clients, I use them all. So we have the physiological interventions and then the mental interventions. And also I use a third type of intervention, which is the social intervention. We, I think we can get that part into this, that, uh, on that topic on the second part. What I wanted to ask you, Banu, is what 
what's something that you had to unlearn over the last years that helped you avoid burnout or that helped you even regulate more optimally your nervous system? If you're asking what, like, because I think about that a lot. I, I talk about burnout a lot and I'm writing content on it because I see it all the time. I work with people who are on the verge of burnout or who are burnt out. It's all over me, but I've never burned out myself. And now being exposed to all the, you know, people like what they are experiencing and the difference, like, and I'm speculating here, what protected me from being burned out is I think I was depressed once after my death passing away, I got into um, clinical depression and it came with like a lot of sense of, you know, worthlessness questioning everything who am I because at the same time I had moved from Turkey where I'm originally from I got married I moved here and I had a lot of reputation in Turkey and you know I was successful went to the best schools I had dance schools everybody revered them you know like I had the set of confidence and sense of worth there I come here and nobody knows me I don't have work permit. I cannot work. I cannot create anything. I'm just sitting at home, like, and I'm processing my dad's passing. And the gift of that period for me, it came to a place, you know, place that like, oh, okay, everything that made me worth, like, doesn't mean anything here. So I'm worthless here. And I realized nothing that I had that I built my confidence on was real. It's like a sandcastle. Nothing was internal. It was all about the situation and what other people thought, what kind of situation, prestige. And I had to come to a place like, and I said, guess what? If I'm not, I'm not, right? But I'm here. I would rather do something with my time here. Like me and I started volunteering in a um, warehouse that, I, you know, I was on a factory line practically sorting out the salvaged grocery items to boxes so that they can give it to you. And I said, at least I have, you know, working hands and feet and I can, you know, I don't have work visa, but it doesn't mean that I cannot do anything. I can work on a factory line sorting out boxes. Fine. And I think that was the beginning of a completely different setup. So my sense of worth does not depend necessarily on the external situation. So I had to find it internally, what that means. And because if your sense of worth is tied to current things with your work, and the chance of failure means that you're gonna lose your sense of worth, it can be very threatening. But, you know, like I feel like I lost it all already so it doesn't matter my identity is not tied to my work i do my work because i absolutely love it i tailor it to myself in a way that i find meaningful it fits to my personality because of that but i think like because i wasn't chasing that i think that's one protective factor second i don't believe that you know like the hard work needs to be glorified hard work is sometimes necessary sometimes it's fun when you are really motivated doing something you want to work hard it's amazing and i can do it all day 
but not because I have to. I'm not a work animal. I want to contribute. And it's about who I am, what I can contribute right now. It's not about I have to prove myself through working hard or like all these like outside cultural elements that I, you know, I was very comfortable to reject. And I think I studied philosophy. Maybe that gave me the that edge to like, I'm, I'm not going to accept everything the society is telling me. Right. And I can pick and choose rather than taking it all because there's a lot of mindsets, belief systems in our culture and our beliefs related to work are incredible, incredibly threatening and not a good fit for knowledge workers. And that's why you have 70% people telling that they experience burnout, like 70%. It's not like an individual issue. There's definitely a problem in the way we work and in the beliefs that we have about work. And I think if you feel like, okay, you don't need to prescribe to those, it's a protective factor, then you can pick and choose what works for you. Thank you. That, that was deep. I really, really appreciate it, that one. And Banu, just to finalize, two last questions. First, where can we find you on the internet? You can go to leaderspsychologist.com uh, uh, to my website. And you can find me on LinkedIn, Banu Hantal Kellner. And... Anybody who wants to connect, they can just send me a message for, through my website or through my LinkedIn. I also have a Twitter handle, Coach Bono, but I'm not super active currently. But I will check it out if you want to reach out. Okay. I will add those ones to the notes of the episode. Just to, to finalize, Banu, if you can leave the audience with one question to help them avoid burnout, what would that question be? To avoid burnout or if they are experiencing burnout? Hmm. Let's, let's, let's see if we can have two, two questions in that way. Okay. If you are experiencing signs of burnout, especially the collapse shutdown kind of like responses, the two questions are the ones like, what makes me feel trapped? What makes me feel overwhelmed? Because if you don't understand what triggers these responses, you cannot find a solution, right? I, I would question those two things. And what prevents from people from burnout is, I think if you have not burnout yet, I don't know if this something is not an issue, I don't think like you need to worry about if you're not burning out, right? If you're not burning out, I think you can ask a different question. How can make things easier, simpler, more higher leverage for myself? How can I have a better life through making it less but better? I really believe that's the mindset that we need as the whole society where there's too muchness of everything. We have too many options. It gets out of hand, even in even if they are good. Just having too many is too much. Or like people creating products and like trying to put cram so many features in it, which actually makes the product much worse. I believe in the motto "less but better," and if we can employ it in our lives, 
we can have better lives. We can have better quality of lives. We can perform better. So if you're not burned out already, I would focus on that. How do I make it less but better? How can I make it easier? How do I make it simpler? Because while you're trying to make it easier, you need to use this. You need to work intelligently. So it's a smart work. You can go to the next level and you can do higher leverage things. You can have one input and get 100 output or 1,000 output. I always say one-to-one -one ratio is not good enough. I Don't put the hard work on it. Now find the things, levers, that's going to give one input and 100 output. Make it simpler, easier. That's going to protect you from not only burnout, but it's going to allow you to have better life and higher performance. Perfect. Thank you so much, Manu. I think we're going to get back to this conversation. Second part, talking about optimal performance, which it, we are starting to, to interrelate those two topics. So any final thoughts? No, thank you for your time. This was fun. Nice. Thank you very much, Manu. Guys, if you enjoyed this conversation about how to avoid burnout, give it a thumbs up and subscribe to receive notifications for upcoming interviews. That's all for today. Keep learning, keep optimizing, and see you soon.